Okay, now hold on, hold on. I have a joke for you, Dave. Oh, I have yes. a joke for you. All right. What um, did I do last night? Oh, gosh. Um, cried in your whiskey while you were watching the news? Played a gig. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. Oh, Wait, I get it. Nobody's get it. playing gigs. I get it. Okay, we'll leave the jokes <laughs> to Dave. So, Dave, really, what's your joke? Oh, uh, okay. My joke. Let's see. <laughs> it's not going to be as funny as your joke. Yeah, mine wasn't funny. Sad. You know, actually, I was going to tell you a time traveling joke. Okay, good. But never mind. You didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Musician Mindset is a conversation series that extracts the performance and preparation thought process from world-class musicians, leaving you with wisdom and exercises to level up your musical journey. <laughs> way better what's up we're back hello hello how is everybody doing out there yep we're still not playing gigs that's how it's going <laughs> yeah yeah jason you're getting that sweet mask tone yeah i got the mask tone. i'm traveling i'm traveling in a couple weeks so i'm trying to keep it extra tight here that's good very good um so we have a special guest today my longtime friend adam gust is here hello hello adam hey. adam is a total badass drummer of the <laughs> highest order who I've always looked up to a lot and is just amazing. Uh, anyway, a little bit about Adam. Adam Gust was raised in the cold of Minnesota, <laughs> studied music in the heat of the University of North Texas, and has served a diverse full-time freelance music career of world touring and session work in Just Right Los Angeles since 2000. After a humbling decade of recovery from a career-threatening injury, Adam acquired a unique expertise, empathy, and voice toward evolving learning environments in drum education and in life. Adam's journey of relearning how to practice has helped him to stumble upon effective student-based uh, progressing learning strategies. Adam is excited to share his story of trauma from black to beyond as he explains how he implements new academic ideas and technologies while reassessing traditional forms of drum instruction. Therapy and education are blood relatives, and the global pandemic is fertile ground to promote meaningful conversations about the application of mental health treatments to education and all disciplines of development. Awareness of trauma-informed modalities will be a key component in our healing from this crisis, both for ourselves and for those we love. Right on. That's a great bio, man. Oh, I love that. Thanks. I love the bio. It's thanks. Cool, Outside of the messing up, it should have been Back to Beyond. An L may have gotten in there for Black to Beyond. Dude, I like Black to Beyond, man. <laughs> black? Maybe like, that's what it it's is It's like now. an ACDC vibe, man. <laughs> black to Beyond. <laughs> I think you should keep it. I think we just <laughs> okay. found it. Yeah. All right. Happy cool. accident. Yeah. Well, yeah, welcome man. to The Hang. I'm, I'm really, uh, if, for those of you who don't know out there, uh, I own a music school and created a methodology on how to teach beginner guitar. So I'm really interested in today's conversation. Oh, cool. um, could we possibly start with, um, well, we usually we start with, with your musical journey where you, you know how you got into music and we'll work our way into the injury that then pivoted your career. So let's take us back from the beginning. The beginning. Uh, I guess that was humble beginnings in Minnesota. That's where I grew up. And uh, I, my first interest in drums came from my brother's interest in guitar. He was really 
uh, improved quickly at the guitar and I started I was, loved Van Halen and I was like oh we could be Van Gust we could be like you know the drummer brother musicians and that's really what made me want to find a complementary instrument to what he did cool because uh, I played trumpet and I played tuba and piano but they never really stuck with me but drums were definitely it for me that's awesome. the moment for the aha moment was I remember I got my first real drum set the what was it Ludwig rocker and I was trying to figure mm. out this how to get the snare together I was 14 and I couldn't get the snare sound and so my brother was helping me and I was, finally he figured it out and I was like I think this is it and he hit it and it was tuned really low and it was, like, <laughs> and it was just this like, amazing sound and that, <laughs> I remember grabbing it out of his hands and like running back to the drum set to set it up so that I kind of like that was my first recognition of yeah this is going to be a part of my life from here on out that's awesome yeah very cool and man. from and from there like take us through like your involvement uh into becoming a pro oh let's see that was when i first started 14 and got the dave weckel instructional video and watched it on slow motion and pretty much back mapped. to basics back to basics what was yeah. the other one called the next step and the next <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep. Yeah, oh, before that, I was a huge metalhead. Dave Lombardo was yeah. the real, I was lived for Slayer. I just absolutely loved Slayer. Yeah, I guess kind of the, just the intensity of it. And then I remember uh, my drum teacher was like, and you need to get into jazz if you really want to mm. be well-rounded and recommended. <laughs> if you really want to get into music, people hate. Forget, <laughs> forget metal. <laughs> Listen to jazz. Yep, thanks. <laughs> Jesse Wheeler, damn you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I mean, I got really into his video and then that got me into Chick Corea and then I remember just buying Chick Corea records because it seemed like just an equation you know buy a Chick Corea record get introduced to another awesome drummer yeah so, yeah I just very true kept buying the first one was now he sings now he sobs I thought oh, it was that's uh, a great start yeah I thought it was Roy Dave Wackel on it it was a oh, reissue funny because it was a reissue in uh, whatever 85 and I thought it Hilarious. came out that year and so I thought it was Wackel and I'm that doesn't sound like Dave Weckl at all. <laughs> and I was like, wow, well, this guy's really that's good. That's so funny, man. Yeah. So right. you went, that was your introduction, because you could use Chikoria as a gateway into like a whole catalog of history of jazz drumming, really, because going back to like Now He Sings, Now He Sobs. Yeah. And then yeah. up through, so you got into like Airto and Return of Forever and oh, all that man. stuff. Oh, man, yeah. And Flora Piram. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Light as a Feather. That was one, another Such one of the record. early ones that yeah. just seemed like, okay. Because I mean, back then, you know, when people bought records like us, I would use my money I made at Walgreens to go buy albums. Yeah. And that was just like, okay, if it's Chikoria's name's on it, it's going to be good. There I'm you go. And then that, that was your introduction to Steve Gadd, maybe? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yep, exactly. Great. That's a good so, way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Modern drummer, of course, like most of us, I think, yep. of our age group. And yep. uh, yeah. And just worked all day on kind of transcriptions and technique. And that was, I think it really forged my identity in a lot of ways because my brother was just such an exceptional human being. I re and he was an older brother. I felt like I needed something that was mine because he just mm. beat me at everything else. You mm -hmm. know, I kind of had classic younger brother syndrome. <laughs> right. So when I found drums, it's like, okay, if I spend all my time on this, I'll like have my own thing. Have your own thing. <laughs> yeah. That's so yeah. common. That's yeah. good. That's a good motivator. What were some of your early practice habits and, and have they translated through uh, into your, your kind of modern playing? Uh, away from the drum set practice, one of my early teachers told me, I was telling him about uh, this long bus ride I had to school, and he said, well, you know, when you're on the bus, you know, don't waste your time. You can't 
read because you're shaking, you kind of are stuck there, you can listen to music, and he showed me this French grip exercise to do. So I would sit on one side of the bus and do the one hand, and then I'd mm -hmm. move over to the other side of the bus and do the other hand. And I noticed the progress in it. And after a few months of doing that for 45 minutes, you know, each way, mm -hmm. I was like, wow, French grip is kind of happening for me. And so, yeah, that was something. And so, I mean, even now, I think feel like there's so much to be learned away from the drum set. I feel Definitely. like 80% of being a musician should be who you are away from your instrument. Because the interface with the instrument is really, I mean, especially for drums, like the actual moment of impact is so small. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything else outside of that moment of impact is, you know, such an important factor. It makes up so much more of who you are and what you're playing it represents. Yeah. So, yeah, Absolutely. just really focusing on who you are away from your instrument and letting the instrument just be the, what transmits your message of who you are. Mm -hmm. Like that philosophy, I think, is huge in how you approach your practice. How can someone mm. develop that? Well, uh, that's uh, <laughs> we get right into Katie O'Sullivan, man. Yeah, there's a Katie O'Sullivan uh, guest that was on this podcast, and I totally loved what she had to say to you guys, and it's focusing on the body. And like, so it's, and flow. I mean, yeah, I wanted to talk more about that with you too. Also finding this way to get into a flow state does not happen behind the drums. It happens away from it, I think. So um, from when I think of flow, I think of something starting in the heart, your emotional core, heart, and a little bit more of the metaphorical mm -hmm. sense, you know, not just the organ. But that's the first conduit, like you know, the why, the what you want to do. And then the next one is the mind of I feel like it's informed by who you are in a sense. Like I think therefore I am like who you are and, you, you know, from the mind's eye, like that's the next conduit where the flow happens. And then it gets into the body and then it gets into the actual interface with the instrument, fingertips or sticks or whatever that is. And then the instrument. And so before you even get to the instrument, like 80% of the ground's already covered. Mm -hmm. And so really getting in touch with like the why of what you're doing, your heart, and like finding out what that is, finding out how the information in your mind can support that and inform that, and then how you can train your body to transmit the message of the heart. And so like, I mean, man, there's so much outside of the drum set. I, I practice that all the time. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and do an, <laughs> an example, even though <laughs> this is a podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> Adam's right? holding sticks now. Yeah, <laughs> I got sticks out. It's just it's something that helps me get in state. I've noticed like just having sticks in my hands yeah. makes me feel better. Yeah. And it's funny because yeah. uh, I've there uh, for autism or Asperger's there are uh, people that who suffer from that tend to like sticks in their hands. And I was like, oh man, you guys yeah. are onto something. Yeah. Like totally, like, you guys sense. should play drums. Cause I totally <laughs> feel that like, man, sticks in the hands just feels good. I think somehow it like triggers my heart. Cause I've really tried to develop this, this flow from the heart to the mind of the body to the instrument. Mm -hmm. And so like just figuring out like how the body moves and seeking out asymmetry in the body. So there's this exercise that I usually go through to warm up which is just kind of think of two hemispheres in either hand and try to like figure out just how to get the sticks to move kind of synchronized with each other. Mm -hmm. And so if there's anything in that practice that has asymmetry, there's anything that's going on that like I can do it here, but I can't do it here, zero in on that. 
And mm. I think that's something that uh, Katie would talk about. There's mm -hmm. like the imprints of, well, any kind of injury or psychological or physical, is, I think is going to manifest somehow in asymmetry in your body. And that can be found out either through practicing drums or like Tai Chi or like some kind of different uh, methodologies of just discovering more about how your body works and how it supports your psychology and how it's a reflection of your psychology. So it's like... Um, it, to kind of paraphrase what you're saying, getting to a point where your body is not uh, in any way like a barrier or a hindrance to having things flow out of you that you would want to express artistically or whatever. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. There's a metaphor that I'm falling more and more in love with, and it's the recording process, because the more I record, the more I can't help but feel like there's the same similar flow there's signal flow in recording mm -hmm. and so there's the source sound there's the thing that the reason why there are recording tools because mm -hmm. <laughs> you want to try to record this thing and for me that translates to the heart it's the why why does this flow exist it's to facilitate growth of you know recording a singer or whatever so that's the heart of it and then there's the microphone there's the and that to me kind of is the the who in the brain it's also like the tool that kind of shapes the sound it captures it and kind of converts it into a transmittable message mm -hmm. and so then the body would be the cable to me i think mm -hmm. that's kind of the the what and you know the more kind of fleshed out transmission of the message and then last is the interface and that's that moment that's the thing that everyone seems to focus on which i think gets way too much focus like the actual you know for drummers, you know, mm -hmm. how the sticks hit the heads, you know, and all these like fine-tuned details here. But I mean, that's like kind of almost the end of the line for the message that you're trying to convey. So I love that, man. You could almost think of it as like a micro and macro signal flow. There's like two signal flows in terms of recording. It's like there's a signal flow that starts in your heart and ends with what you're playing and then there's a signal flow that starts with what you're playing and ends with what's getting recorded right exactly yeah, yeah that's that's it it's based on a uh, dr gardner seven uh, he's a learning theorist talked about the seven ways that we learn mm -hmm. and so these are just two of the seven that i'm kind of applying this flow i call it the flow chart so the one is going to be the logical it's the questions like it's the the why and then the who in your mind and then the what and mm -hmm. then the how and then the when is like kind of beat placement and that kind of thing and the last is where because like i don't think where matters i think you should be able to be in a flow state no matter where you are and mm -hmm. so like really disassociating flow with where you are i think is one of the strongest things you, you mean can... like physically like, yeah yeah like yes. where you actually are or whether you even yeah. have drums or not gotcha like yeah. really deprioritizing <laughs> that mm -hmm. question mm -hmm. in terms of the logic of like your flow and the way that we learn that auditory um, form of learning is going to be I, I kind of attribute that to the recording signal flow mm -hmm. and then there's and then all the other seven there are different ways that if think if you understand flow in terms of those seven ways that we learn you can really start getting the big picture uh, with how to tap into the why the heart and what just for everyone listening, what is that a book you're basing that on? What's the seven ways? Uh, there's a learning theorist, Dr. Gardner. Okay. And he put forward this theory that it's been discounted because he believed like people learned in one of seven different ways. But the uh -huh. fact is that we learn in all seven, but we prioritize them different oh, cool. depending on who we are. But that's like just something you could Google. It's not a book. Yeah. Or yeah. Just look it up. Cool. Yeah. And so it's, it's, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about it because mm -hmm. I feel like I'm, I really want to try to demystify 
kind of cliches, mm-hmm. you know, these things like love the space and, you know, get into flow and mm-hmm. less is more. And you hear them a million times, but like, I really need a freaking tactical guide <laughs> like right. how to find my way through this. And yeah. so I think if you just describe it the way you learned it, that's not enough for most people. I think if you can really spread it out and approach it on seven fronts, that's mm-hmm. like really you wind up with greater comprehension that way. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and I've to had to because yeah. I've, I only learned in one way for a mm-hmm. long time and I hit a wall with that. And mm-hmm. I had to figure out like, okay, I need to kind of divide and conquer this. I need to kind of surround it, figure out some different tools to mm-hmm. get around it. And yeah. So when you hit a wall, are you referencing a certain... <laughs> Are you referencing the, your accident that happened? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. a good segue. I, yeah. I want to talk about that. So it was 10 years ago, right? May 8th, 2010. 2010. When it happened, yeah. And so this, tell people, so I, you know, you and I used to be in touch a lot more, like, I guess before your accident, right? Like we would trade yeah. gigs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I, we just kind of fell into different circles. I didn't talk to you for a while and I didn't realize this had happened to you. And then you called me out of the blue like a month ago. Let's kind of start there with that phone call and then what that, you know, what prompted that. And I'm so glad you called me and um, and then take people back and explain what happened. Okay. Uh, well, the moment of impact, I guess. Yeah, it was a gig I was doing at a house party. It was a pretty lavish 50th birthday party in Palm Springs. Great band. It's really looking forward to it. And I was loading into the gig and there was this huge sliding glass door and the first two trips I went through it, dropped the drums, everything's fine. Well, the owner of the house closed the door gets to save on AC and I didn't know that he had done that. Mm -hmm. And it was just been washed and floor to ceiling glass door like I didn't even see it. I and I walked into it and it shattered and really it wasn't safety glass. It was. It was very thick, heavy, sharp Mm -hmm. shards of glass falling from this crack. And they fell on my hands and very destructive. And there was blood everywhere. And yeah, I immediately was rushed to the sink. And man, the bass player wrapped towels around my arms just to keep the flesh on the bone because it was kind of falling off. And it was very surreal. My memory of it is pretty scattered. I remember like hitting the glass and it cracked and it didn't occur to me what happened. It kind of looked like reality cracked like I remember just looking through these people heard the sound and they're looking back at me from the party with these faces like what and I was and I didn't even know what happened so I remember like reaching out to like what the hell I didn't even know what that was and that's what did me in so yeah I went to the emergency room and got uh, 27 stitches in both hands and it was it was uh I mean I always tried to downplay it for a long time because I thought, oh, man, people have been through worse. And even the doctors like, man, you were so lucky. Like this tendon was only cut in half. And they're like, oh, my gosh, if you had cut that tendon, you would never play drums again. You should be so grateful. And wow. And I was kind of like, uh, <laughs> I don't not, feel grateful right now. I'm <laughs> grateful. <laughs> so, yeah, that was it was very impactful. And I had to cast for two months on both hands. And mm-hmm. it's it's hard to describe what that's like like the first week you're kind of okay oh man well thank god you know this didn't happen and then when you get to the third week and realize you're not even at the halfway point it starts to mess with you particularly as drummers i mm-hmm. think yeah wow i can't yeah. even imagine that's amazing what was the some of the mental uh exercises or things you learned to get through those those that time with the casts on was that the foundation of your kind of rewiring on how you're thinking and how you're approaching your that was not that was unfortunately i went the wrong direction with that and i think that's part of the reason why i feel 
almost an obligation now to talk about it because there are not a lot of resources that prepare people prepared me for a situation like that. And so I'd, I'd go online and I'd look up well, how to deal with injury. There's a lot of repetitive stress injury. Uh, if I, it's my belief that trauma is a bit of a, it's hard to talk about for mm. musicians. And mm. I think it's something that we really need to talk about. And I think especially now with COVID, we're going to whether we want to or not. Yeah. I mean, trauma informed anything. Just I, I go into Google and write trauma informed and see what comes up. There's hmm. trauma-informed everything now that wasn't before COVID. And what do you mean by trauma-informed? Well, there's a, the way I first was introduced to what it is is through trauma-informed education. So the idea is like kids are going back to school. We're going to have teachers, parents, and students who all have their own version of trauma going on that's undiagnosed, most likely, and they won't, aren't even willing to call it that, most people. And so you have these three groups that are going to be interacting in a dangerous environment. And mm -hmm. how is that going to play out? Yeah. So this is a very great segue in order <laughs> to, I get to talk about the man, Bessel van der Kolk. He's the okay. doctor who diagnosed PTSD. And um, so he has some takes on what being trauma-informed is as a therapist. Let's find just i mean just how he, he even looks at having to prepare himself in order to treat people with trauma and i've met i've this you, to be trauma informed is to read this book it's widely accepted as mm -hmm. he is he's the more person who diagnosed it it uh, starts with the science and talks about the psychology of it and then gets into treatment and it's brilliant it's reverent i audited a class recently on trauma informed education and it was all it was was bessel van der Kolk, like Wow. So he's, I mean, you can't go wrong reading yeah. this, but, but uh, that is why therapists need to have done their own intensive therapy so they can take care of themselves and remain emotionally available to their patients. So what he's saying is that you better have your own shit together if you're even going to be ready to talk about right. it, like hear it from another person or even deal with your own. Like it's so because I mean, when people talk about trauma, or when I've talked about my experience, uh, something that I've gotten a lot from people is like, oh, well, I'm sure there are out people out there that we could be you know, better off hearing your message. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, well, and God forbid if something happened to me, maybe I will then listen to what you have to say or what people who you know, are promoting trauma-informed awareness, what they have to say. But that's totally missing the point because mm -hmm. you, their likelihood, your worst day is probably a trauma. Like, I mean, it's, it's all a matter of degree. Like, right. I think by calling it a trauma, you immediately go worst case scenario. I think our society tends to believe that. Like, oh, this person has trauma. They lost a leg in a war. Or, you know, right, they, right. they kind of have an image of what that is. But I mean, just pick your worst day and feel what your body does reacting to really diving into that. Mm -hmm. And if there are changes in your body when you think about that, I would recommend reading this book. Wow. I mean, any, any f level of mm -hmm. kind of body association with a difficult challenge in your life is it's a version of trauma and the, and the treatments are all the same, like re regardless of how severe it is versus how minor it is, it's all kind of the same medium. It's all getting in touch with the body where it resides, getting in touch with the emotional brain. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it can help everyone no matter kind of what stage they are. Wow. Can you walk us through your path? Uh, and how you dealt with the trauma of that situation? Yeah, I mean, what when I was in 
casts, I really felt like I, there was nothing out there for me to latch on to. I mean, I wish I could go and whisper in my ear now. And I guess that's kind of the audience for people that I want to reach out to is like, you need to educate yourself because therapy and education, I think even, especially now, they're, they're pretty much going to be intermingled. And I mean, it already is. If A growth mindset is a very pervasive concept in education, and it's based in therapy. It's based in how we feel about ourselves in relation to what we're learning. And so when I've read a, read a book like I Don't Want to Talk About It by Terrence Rial, who's a specialist in male depression and survive, or surviving trauma, if you read that book and then read Carol Dweck's book on growth mindset, mm-hmm. they're, talking, they're coming from the same place. Mm-hmm. But one's talking about therapy, one's talking about education. And so how you overcome uh, loss or, uh, uh, in, or injury psychologically is by educating yourself. And the way you overcome a learning obstacle is by kind of preparing yourself for that emotional challenge of kind of confronting a huge amount of information and for drumming uh, there are huge applications for getting in touch with the body and also preparing yourself for learning how would you prepare yourself uh how would preparing yourself for learning that's there's a a huge amount of empathy has to happen for others and for yourself there's (laughs) that's a that's a that is the question how how did did you do it how did i prepare myself i hit bottom (laughs) that's how i did it i wouldn't recommend that uh there are much better ways to do it than i did it and so i kind of want to be a messenger to let people know that man don't let it get to where i let it get so when you say you hit bottom you're talking emotionally as a result of your accident you were depressed and everything. Yeah, there was a seven-year span from the time I was had the accident till the time I was diagnosed with PTSD. Hmm. And wow. so during that time, I was very much about like muscling through it, being powerful, like being the sovereign king, and I can, my, yeah. you know, it's it's and it's a very ingrained, particularly in men. I yeah. think it's a reflection of our masculinity to kind of overcome obstacles and off. not admit weakness. And yeah. there's a that's a huge thing. I can't even begin to look back and see how many decisions I made that were in fear of bad decisions I made that were somehow in fear of negatively affecting my sense of my own masculinity, which is weird because I've always kind of been a mama's boy, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. and so with my mother and I've been very Mm -hmm. compassionate. I always felt like I had a lot of feminine qualities. But when I really uh, kind of started digging into the effect of my trauma on my psychology, I just realized I had huge issues with trying to protect this this sense of my identity as a man. Wow. Yeah. And Terrence Real gets into that a lot. It's, uh, it's I mean, the, to read The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk and then I Don't Want to Talk About It by Terrence Real. Like, I I think it would transform just about any man's concept of themselves and how they deal with failure. I mean, those two paired. This is very physical. I mean, the body keeps the score, of course. Mm -hmm. It talks about the body a lot. He talks about the psychology a lot, of course, too. But, um, yeah, Terry really gets into the nitty gritty of that, like the flow state. I love this idea of like kids are always in flow and you want to, you know, try to help Mm -hmm. that and assist with that but there's this point inevitably in any development of a male is where they're in flow and some point between three to six it usually happens that the flow is interrupted by somebody explaining to them that they don't do that because they're a boy like it's and so i mean we if 
it's that's what Terry mm. kind of bases his psychology on. Like there's some moment that we associate not being in flow with trying to maintain our sense of what boys are, what boys do. And so it's like, so this like hypermasculine posturing, I think is a huge inhibitor of any kind of flow state. Like I've- <laughs> I mean, to like, to simplify it, is that because the need to like keep your guard up or present a certain facade is preventing you from the natural ebb and flow of your emotions? Like, is that kind of what it is? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's essentially you're kind of going back to that moment when masculinity was defined to you as a boy. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to be in the current state of who you are and, you know, be in a flow state, you're hearkening back to the past. And there's that conflict between staying in the present. And I mean, any because I mean, your masculinity is not being defined in the present. It's been defined for you already. Right. And so any kind of under like trying to bolster that or maintain that you're already at a loss. Because basically anytime you have any preconceived notion of who you should be or what should be happening, that in and of itself is a uh, prohibiting flow state, yeah. essentially, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and that's it's a pretty convincing argument that Terry puts forth. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's man, his whole thing on narcissism is actually self-hate instead of self-love. Oh, dude. <laughs> wow. It killed me, man. That I, that's, uh, I can see that. Yeah. Definitely, I mean, I could see that. Yeah, yeah you're upset. Who is narcissist? He was obsessed with his image. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's what the hyper-masculine posturing man is. He's obsessed with how his, he's conveying yeah. himself. Well, so, you, you know, you just reminded me of one of the things that I specifically wanted to bring up. When we talked on the phone a couple of months ago, you told me that you had a, a lecture that you gave at MI. You teach yeah. at MI? Do you still teach? At MI? Uh, I just yeah. did a lecture there. I had a few students from there. Not, not very much. No. Yeah, cool. But, um, so this is on YouTube. Uh, everyone should check this out. Um, it's a two-hour, like, open counseling lecture that you gave. Yeah. And you described basically a lot of what you've talked about here, like the experience of your accident, what you learned from it. But I wrote down a couple of the things that you said that really I thought were very profound and really stuck out to me. One of the things you said in that YouTube video, you said your internal dialogue might be a conversation between who you are and the image of who you are. Yes. Yeah. So that kind of taps into that, what you were just saying, like that, that can be a disconnect for people where who I really am versus who I think I am. Like the idea is to get those two as close together as possible. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly it. That's straight up Terrence Real. Uh, it's, it's ultimately gets into a little bit more broader sense of what he's getting at, I think could be called attribute-based privilege versus merit-based privilege. Hmm. Like, and that gets into gender, race, status, age, mm -hmm. like th uh, things that we apply as attributes to anything, anyone. Mm -hmm. And then there's merit-based, which is like the actual action itself. Like, was does the action, does the result garner something worthwhile or not? Or, mm -hmm. And so I think when you get into attribute-based privilege, it has a lot to do with internal dialogue. You're trying to sort of reconcile some conflicting views about things. I mm -hmm. mean, because I mean, it just it seems like should should be people base themselves on merit or on attributes like duh like the person with the most qualified should get the job the person mm -hmm. who is most whatever should get the most whatever but mm -hmm. i mean that's logic but when attributes start playing getting into play with that it kind of messes it up and you end up having a lot of conflict a lot of sort of um cognitive dissonance is definitely like conflicting core beliefs mm -hmm. and so those core beliefs yeah they kind of have to be rationalized rationalized in your mind and mm -hmm. so that prompts some discussion 
And so right. who is discussing those two things? Well, I just would really implore people to uh, dig into that. Like yeah. who is talking in an internal dialogue? Because yeah. nobody can help you with that. It's the one conversation that can't be spied on. Right. It's like the only thing that it's the, and we have this conversation our whole lives and to yeah. not explore that is dangerous. Yeah, I think. I, that really hit me when I heard you say that on the video. I, I think it's brilliant. And one of the things you said earlier in that, um, you said something to the effect of like my whole life, so much of my, my identity was wrapped up in being a great drummer. And then when that was, we were faced with that being stripped away from you. I mean, it seems like that sparked more self self-reflection of like, who am I really as, apart from my identity as a drummer? Like who am I as a person? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. There's a, another Terry Riel uh, thought process is he feels like in a physical trauma, there are three healings, which, man, it's I wish I could have wish I would have read this book <laughs> when the accident happened. Oh, my God, because it just it mattered so much to me. There's the physical the physiological healing itself of the mm -hmm. wound. And then there's the psychological trauma that ensues from that. And that's, it's a whole nother subject. Yeah. And then there's the masculine trauma that happens from being kind of loss of your masculinity, kind mm -hmm. of like a potent man versus an impotent man. Mm -hmm. You know, like the potent man is, you know, you have a certain image of what that would be. And then you reverse that. And literally like the guy yeah. is not a man. He's right, impotent. Right. 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 And so, I mean, it, there's the language is built up that way a lot, like a, the, a diminished man, you know, mm -hmm. think of a diminished man, you know, and now ask yourself, does he have a penis? You know, I mean, right. you're kind of like there are just these weird associations we have with language, wow, yeah. uh, particularly in our in being men. There's another thing that uh, Terry talks about. He talks about, like, imagine that masculine, hypermasculine part of you and imagine if it was 100 pounds and you took it out and you put it next to you and it was like disembodied from you, like whatever you would associate in yourself, like put it there and now try to teach it something. Like just imagine trying to teach that part of yourself something versus what's left. Like mm. you would much rather want to teach what's left. Mm, and so, yeah. I mean, somehow when you separate that, and you, I mean, that, the imagery of that, I think it helps in education to kind of think like, wow, the more kind of machismo or like trying to be a man I am, it's really, you know, it's, it lacks the humility and empathy necessary to learn anything. Yeah. So, and then it kind of filters into the type of person that you're attracted to or not. I mean, right. there's like, there are certain groups that are, I never did well in those kind yeah. of groups of bravado yeah. and, uh, you know, yeah. like I've kind of never felt right there. And, yeah. and I don't think I want to feel right there. Right. I don't think like, I mean, Quincy Jones, leave your ego at the door. I'd yeah. like, that's ego to yeah. me, that kind of sense of totally. Yeah. Yeah. Caring more about what people think of you than really like project flow really yeah. i mean that's not coming from your heart that's going backwards that's reverse flow is like kind of attributing your identity to your gender what is it the john wooden quote the football guy he said or basketball i don't know wooden yeah yeah i'm see i'm not a masculine sports guy i don't know <laughs> no but he said something to the effect of like um don't worry at all what other people think of you worry a lot about what you think of yourself yeah i'm probably butchering that but something like that that's mm -hmm. the idea yeah, that's yeah. it. That is flow to me. Like, yeah. cause it outside in is reverse flow. That's like salmon upstream. That's yeah. it's so hard. But and there's a lot of immediate gratification from that. But the long term is just empty. It's, yeah, it's yeah. really poisonous actually. Yeah. So. How has the the work you've been doing um, on your spiritual and mental self 
translated into your your drumming it has made all the difference uh well here's i'm gonna talk about treatment here <sighs> shit dude <laughs> I, okay i'm i gotta get comfortable with this so <laughs> you got it man <laughs> okay so i did a lot of journaling uh, i was on this cruise ship and uh, I, but right before I took the six month contract, I saw a therapist, Marge Graham Bowman, and she gave a few sessions with me and she pretty much isolated what my problem is, but she's like, this is not enough time to really get into this with you. So I'm just getting, she told me to, you know, what books to read and do a lot of journaling. And she recommended um, prolonged exposure therapy, which is what I've been doing for three years. So what you essentially do, it originated with um, sexual assault victims, and it was very effective. Uh, Edna Fowa was the practitioner of that, and she had a lot of success by sitting with a sexual assault victim and just having them describe every detail chronologically in as much detail as they possibly could, videoing it, going home, watching the video, reliving it, taking notes, and then forcing that into your life. Like if you're uncomfortable going to the grocery store, go to the grocery store. Like, mm -hmm. like really just digging into this thing. And a lot of people felt like that was just like violent. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a horrible thing to put someone through. But she was finding 80% success rate with people able to get over it. It's very dangerous because you can go into mania. You can become overly, you know, stimulated by these memories. But mm -hmm. if they're tra dealt with properly, there are ways to get around. And I think that's important for anyone who might feel they have a trauma is that, the, I mean, the last 15 years of brain science and trauma treatment is just garnered so much more success than it ever has in the history of mankind mm -hmm. and for so many reasons but uh, but so my i was doing that i was doing the videos i would be on the ship i've worked 10 hours a week on this cruise ship <laughs> gig it was two nice. nights a week <laughs> so the rest of the time i was just like thank you jesus like oh my god what an amazing <laughs> opportunity to like get away from life and really explore this and so I was very sequestered in my little seven foot by five foot cabin, wow. <laughs> you know, and wow. journaling and doing videos of myself. And so I would do free writing, and this is one of the journals, like I've dozens of notebooks of just free writing. And so I remember I wrote it out, and there's this, always this point that I would get to on like the second page where I felt like something was speaking that wasn't me. Like somehow mm -hmm. like everything would kind of quiet and these things would come out. And so in this particular part here, I have the, my journal from December 19th, 2016. I was journaling away, and then I was three weeks later, I was look, reading back through it. And uh, it's like I was, wrote, on your way back out of the, out of the house, that's where I was um, during, at the time of the accident, the owner of the house closed the door to save on air conditioning. You looked at the cake as you walked on your way to the backyard. And I remember like the more in the therapy, you kind of just remember things mm. that trigger different things. That's kind of part of the therapy. And I remember writing that and being like, oh, yeah, I kind of turned. And I mean, it was a ma this magnificent birthday cake and I kind of turned and saw it. And then I, that's when I hit the glass because I wasn't because I thought it was clear ahead of me. And so so on your way to the backyard, you weren't looking ahead of you and crack. I wrote crack mm. and for some reason that uh, there was an alignment between the memory of the cake and the sound of the glass breaking. And so here I was in the middle of the ocean on a cruise ship and I'm kind of playing drum, you know, on my leg and mm. kind of reading through my journal. And when I heard the sound in my head, my arm just tensed up mm. and I wow. was just like, 
holy shit, that's yeah. it. That's like this tension that I had for seven years that I thought was this nerve damage that I still have in my thumb. I thought it was the nerve damage being triggered. And, but I didn't have any flashbacks. I didn't have any like visual or smell or any associations with the moment. So it never occurred to me that this physical problem was psychological. Wow. But when I was able to pair the sound of hitting the glass with playing drums, that's when I realized that holy shit, that's what it is. That's like classic PTSD. Your eye, that would, and it was, and it's kind of like a sound of a cymbal. And so when I would play drums, I'd be in this hypervigilant state of being worried that I would trigger my trauma and oh, I didn't wow. know it was trauma. And so wow. I would just be playing and these things, something would happen and it would usually be the sound of a cymbal that would kind of trigger that, you know, that Whoa. sound and I didn't even know it was there well, and could, so you could feel tension in your muscles yeah it would tense up and it would last for a few minutes and so on a gig I would start playing hi-hat with my foot and like faking because I couldn't even I mean my arm would just be a brick Holy I mean and so I just lived in fear of this tension happening in my arm and I came up with all these countermeasures to try to deal with it figuring like technical ways to try to predict you know when this tension would happen and all along, it, I just, it was unresolved psychological damage that was manifesting physically. And so this is, this is, so therapy is almost like it's a ghost chase. I mean, you're also this invisible enemy, which is perfectly metaphorically like <laughs> applied to COVID. I think right, people sure. were going to be much better able to understand what trauma is when now that we're in the middle of COVID. Because it's, I mean, there are asymptomatic carriers of trauma. I mean, other, I think of people that came down on me really freaking hard when I would try to confide in them about my traumatic experience and they just blew up at me like I was being an ass and I look back Why? now. What do you mean? Why would they blow up at you? Because I was triggering their trauma. Oh, oh wow. So that's what trauma informed education wow. is. Gotcha. Do not let your shit, do not dump it on somebody who has plenty of their own. Right. And we do that to each other all the time and it heavily stems out of the nature of being a victim blaming. Wow. So I mean, like, I'm, I'm sure you hear that, especially particularly in sexual assault. Like, I mean, the, oftentimes the yeah. rape victim Blame is the, the victim, one who's yeah. blamed. And I mean, Dr. Vanderkolk really summed this up. This line always jumps out at me. It's like, we all want to live in a world that is safe, manageable, and predictable. And victims remind us that this is not always the case. So a victim is somebody that kind of reflects our own insecurities. And so mm. when we see somebody who's a victim, they kind of can trigger this kind of our own sense of victimhood. Like, I don't want to talk to you about the bad thing that happened to you because it's a reminder that something bad could happen to me or did right. happen to me. And so it's try and so you try to wow. shift the blame onto them. Like, oh, well, because they did this, this happened. Right. Like, oh, Adam, you walked through the freaking glass right. yourself. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Going through the home insurance, trying to go to the guy who owns the house and get some uh, help with yeah. that and talking to the band leader about how I it was a nightmare like both of them reacted with trauma because they're like it was your fault yeah and, and yeah. I was like if I were a contractor and this happened if you you hired me to be there I right. wasn't I can even feel it you know <laughs> I can yeah. feel like that physiological shift of wow. anger and and then that this gets directly into the two moments that I was extremely ashamed of um I mean we Zayn Musa and Mike Aia. They were two good friends of mine. We worked closely together for years, tons of gigs, flyouts, drive dates, hotel rooms shared. I freaking coached Mike through his whole Airbnb thing. I'm the one who convinced him to do it. And so, I mean, we, uh, and both of them had traumatic 
memories and they shared them with me and man i'm just i'm ashamed to say it but i blew up at them mm -hmm. i would they kind of pictured they're good looking guys they're great at what they do everyone loved them you know i mean they they just had that rock star quality about them they all mm -hmm. they were they were like mike was balancing you know another business and is playing playing with a bunch of big gigs and so when he revealed that to me I really just hate what I said to him. And what it was, was a reflection of my own internal dialogue, me talking to myself. Mm -hmm. And not to say that th they both went on to take their own lives in different ways. And so uh, it's not to say that I feel like what I said was, you know, right. led to that, but I sure as hell wasn't an ally, right? you know? And so trauma-informed education, trauma-informed therapy, trauma-informed anything has to be with being allies reflecting their support rather than their own victimization right. and victim blaming happens inside of ourselves there's two people in an internal dialogue and if you blame the victim externally you're going to blame the victim internally and so that's what i was doing for seven years i'm to myself that internal dialogue of so like, okay can you say that again so oh, the the two people you're talking about you're talking to yourself and your inner voice right yeah and if you blame the victim internally meaning if you're blaming yourself in your own mind? Yeah. Okay. And so that's what happens in trauma. Like in the moment that you're feeling traumatized, it's actually your brain going back to a past event, but it's so coloring the current time that you just think it's all in the present. Mm. And so mm -hmm. it's that like really separating that, you know, what had the past and the present. And I mean, talk about taking you out of flow. I right. mean, it's like, and so something goes wrong and triggers a bunch of things and your like, performance anxiety and suddenly you're just totally out of it and you're a mess. And it's, a, well, a lot of that has to do with your own psychology, where your internal dialogue was at that moment. What, right. what did you say to yourself the moment that thing went wrong? Right. What did you say? For me, uh, a big shift for me was, I don't know what I'm doing to I know what I'm doing. Like, cause I'll get on my phone and oh, I got to do something and I'll kind of like, get sidetracked right. so at one kind of just little thing I'd always I don't know what I'm doing fuck get back on track right. you know and I go back to it or I'd be just anything like that and I realized like no I need to say I know what I'm doing don't do this mm -hmm. and the difference between those two internal dialogues are everything yeah. I mean like you I know what I'm doing that's like that that's the reason I'm stopping this bullshit tangent about, <laughs> you know it's like and not oh I don't know what I'm doing what am I doing oh yeah now I remember what I'm like doing. being intentional about everything yeah, right? yeah yeah exactly and so which obviously translates to music hugely in your playing yeah and I was gonna actually bring this up earlier hmm. in the conversation when you were saying how your the your heart and your personality flows out of your playing and you know, when Jason was asking, well, how can a younger player work on this? I mean, um, I think it's common that you see someone sit down to play or practice and they kind of like go on autopilot. And like the first, I used to do this when I was younger, you know, like the first 15 minutes of a practice session is me just playing all the stuff I'm awesome at, you know what I mean? And not being intentional about what I'm playing and thinking about what I'm doing and trying to work on something. I just go on autopilot and I'm just playing all my stuff that I always play. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's a thing I'm working on kind of I'm in the process of writing a book and dimensioning things. And it's been very interesting like, to kind of put myself into three different people. Like there's the person I was before my accident. There's the person I was between my accident and my diagnosis. And then there's the person I was from my diagnosis mm -hmm. until now. And so. Oh, shit. Sorry. What was your question? It does relate to this. But. Oh, I was talking about. Um, <laughs> being intentional when you sit down to play and right like right sweet then mop. And 
that's what I would say. Like, so, like the idea of, okay, let's say you have a filthy floor mm -hmm. and are you going to go right into mopping it? Like, no, you need to first sweep it. You need right. to get like all the big chunks, all the big debris kind of cleared and swept up. And then you can get into the fine tuning mm -hmm. mopping. And I've kind of liked sweeping and mopping and kind of <laughs> like it's yeah. physical. But so the idea, I think for practice, I, I have a routine I go through before I practice. Like, so uh, there's, and it does, it's away from the drums. So mm -hmm. it's just like basically that, exercise kind of like getting the hands warmed up mm -hmm. and then just like playing here and just kind of like doing rhythms and pretending like I'm at the drums when I'm not and mm -hmm. so I think after, if you do that long enough you really start to feel where things are stronger and where they're weaker and it's easier to bring something weaker up to being stronger when you feel that asymmetry than bringing them both up together I think there are just mm. inhibitors that cause there to be asymmetry mm -hmm. and if you can find out what those are physically and work on those I think your level of improvement is going to be much better mm -hmm. than if you like try to treat more traditional educational methods. Oh, this is might be more for drums since it is such a physical instrument. Mm -hmm. But I mean, man, if you're trying to get a kid to play unison and he's got a huge like kind of gap in his asymmetry with his left hand, like mm -hmm. that unison is never going to work until he like strengthens, you know, some part of him mm -hmm. just to bring mm -hmm. that balance. There's yeah. a guy in the ship I met, Giorgio Rojas, and he talked about flow all the time. And he was he taught me Tai Chi and Chinese martial arts and Afro-Peruvian drum. He was another dude who was working 10 hours a week. And <laughs> so we're just like, hey, <laughs> let's, let's hang out. And man, it's like I being in quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly and thank god for that guy and he was all about that so there, yeah. there's this exercise that this that put your arms out like this way and then you bring your elbow out to here and try to point sorry this is oh, a podcast wow. you're gonna miss this and then <laughs> i'm doing a symmetry exercise right now and so then doing that in front of Extending the mirror. Extending both your arms out to your side and rotating your wrists. Yeah, is what he's and doing. so that the hands wind up together. And if you watch yourself mm -hmm. in the mirror, you see like where in your forearm you're asymmetrical, where in your shoulder, where in your chest. So to, to describe that to people listening, you're putting both your arms out like parallel to the floor. Pointing the fingers up. Yeah, fingers. pointing the inside of the hand towards your face. Yeah, and your yeah. fingers are pointing fingers up at the up, sky. And then rotating to your right and going counterclockwise. Oh, wow, that's hand. hard. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. And man, what it does for your wrist, your forearm, your bicep, your shoulder, all through here, it just whew, man, wow. it feels like freaking amazing. And then wow. I connected this idea with this thing. Man, I got to <laughs> put you got to put a link to this. Okay. In the, sure. What is it? Uh, yeah. It is a posture brace. I, it was a stupid Facebook ad. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed I bought it, but I was working so much on posture. Because I was noticed the more I did this, the more I started finding out kind of like when my shoulders were symmetrical to the drum set. Like, wow, I just felt so much freedom. Mm -hmm. So you just put this on. And then you gauge how tight you want it to be. So if you're starting with it, you'd like put it like here. So you have mm -hmm. a lot of freedom. And I'm thinking, oh, I'll start off easy. First time I bought it, showed up in the mail. I'm playing along. I went to hit my left crash. And I like couldn't reach it. Huh. I was like what the hell? Because <laughs> I noticed I was like turning my shoulder in. And ah. I was like, why? If, if I'm going for symmetry with the shoulder, why would I do that? So I started like creeping it in and I started, wow, I like, I really need to figure out how to get to that crash without moving the shoulder forward because it's kind of throwing you off. And so mm -hmm. meanwhile, there are all these drummers out there who are working with click tracks, trying to like get down to, oh, I got to get, you know, within three milliseconds of the click. Right. And they're focusing on that. Meanwhile, they have just all this like, 
setbacks. Everything right. in their physiology, their posture, their musculature, their their psychology, like yeah. all these things are, I mean, because like, like asymmetry in the body is represented by asymmetry in the mind and vice versa. They're all totally connected. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like Katie O'Sullivan yeah. talked about how like your psychology is represented on a cellular level inside of your body. Yeah. So, wow. I'm going to try that, man. It's, yeah. It's that, amazing. Man. Almost everyone yeah. I taught it to like, is like, yeah, I'm still doing that thing you showed me. Yeah. <laughs> and so this thing that you're talking about, the device you're wearing to describe it it's it looks like you put on a backpack but there's nothing on the yeah. back part. It's just like shoulder straps <laughs> yeah it's worn like a backpack yeah they're on amazon they're 12 yeah. bucks they're amazing i had this exercise where i would look myself in the mirror before i got this thing and i would try to sit with good posture and i'd watch myself and i would try to last a minute look away and focus on something i practice on and i'd always go back mm -hmm. and i was just like damn it like yeah. I mean, you just do the exercise or take a deep breath roll your shoulders forward take a deep breath and then now roll your shoulders back and take a deep breath. It's like, like you're, you're almost up, yeah. overwhelmed with how much oxygen you're able to intake. And yeah. you're going to have to have extra water because you're inhaling so much oxygen that it's huh. actually going to dry out your nasal cavity if you work with this. So the point of that thing is to train you to keep your shoulders back more yeah. and not and, slouch. Yeah. And so yeah. it's because, I mean, it's like asymm if, we're, yeah. if you're, we are signed off on this idea that we're trying to rid our bodies of asymmetry, not complete asymmetry, just awareness of what is mm -hmm. asymmetrical. Mm -hmm. It's because the drum set's asymmetrical. But right. I mean, but understanding where our asymmetry exists in our internal dialogue in our psychology and our physiology that's really going to help us get the results that we want ultimately because like we were talking about before like it starts in the heart goes through the mind goes through the body interface with the instrument like all this the thing, you know there's like so much going on behind yeah. the scenes before there's that final impact point on the instrument wow but I, this, I would highly recommend it. This thing's yeah. amazing. I'm going to try one. And it Definitely. just, it just keeps you kind of in this better posture. I call this the imposter posture. Like that feeling like, oh, I'm an imposter. You know, I, yeah, like kind of, I'm the younger brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the mama's boy. <laughs> I associate with the, uh, anyway, right. like in a patriarchal society, you know, like men and women are tiered, you know? And right. so like, I felt, I don't know. I always felt this kind of imposter syndrome about myself, but mm -hmm. I've definitely re-dimensioned that in terms of my therapy and my recovery, like realizing that, wow, I've really had to kind of have a complete life overhaul in order to recover from this thing. Yeah. How are you, That's how amazing. are you maintaining the, these new habits? Like, let's just start, start with like the physical aspect of it. Okay. So like the posture and then how you approach your, your, um, you're playing with that. I, I, cause I've, I've, I have a, um, an electric posture, posture trainer. You wear it on your back and, and, it's oh, connected to awesome. your phone. If you if you lean over for too long, it zaps you. Oh, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, that's like the digital version of this analog. Yeah, it, it was it was fantastic. But but it's it's you know it takes a, an immense amount of discipline to maintain the consistency of that for it then to become a habit. Yeah. So so what are what is your routine uh, to continue to work on on your overall balance and posture? Uh, this, I wear this whenever I practice. I have three oh. of them. I keep one in my bag, one at the drums. Like I don't practice without it. I've wow. even on gigs that I have a vest or something, I can hide it. Yeah. <laughs> I wear it on gigs back when there were gigs, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, I've, I can't tell you how important this has been for me. And just like, so uh, when I'm just thinking, I keep thinking about the thing you said about reaching for the left crash crash with your right hand. Is there a right way that you can do that with that on? Or is it actually yeah. preventing you from doing that at all? So I kind of do this slash. So if Use I'm here on the ride, yeah, I do kind of like a sideways swipe. And is so, the idea for your right 
hand to never cross over the center line of your body to the left? Uh, it's just to keep a balance. It's like I feel like drummers don't – a lot of us don't understand how much impact on our time feel is our balance. Uh, uh, Giorgio Rojas, this guy, talked about all the time, like, symmetrical s energy, like, to send and receive is – equally balanced you receive it that like if you put it out that way that's how you're going to receive it right and same like so it's it's just it ends up like exponentially getting off balance if you're if you yourself aren't centered so it gets a little uh wow. <laughs> philosophical for, for very quickly but i totally yeah. get what he means now and now i mean because there were things that would throw me off the click. Like I'd practice with the click. It's like, okay, doing this would, I noticed it would make me rush or drag. And so mm -hmm. I would like focus on the, the mechanics of that. I would think, okay, there's this thing. When I do this, I fuck it up. So I, I'm going to work on this thing. And I work on it over and over so that I don't rush or drag. And mm -hmm. the whole time, it's something that's deeper up the front right, right, chain. Right, right, yeah. Right, right, and right. so it's like, man, I really need to dig back on why I'm even doing this. Because mm -hmm. I mean, the hundredth time you do something that you're not good at, it starts to be a little defeating you're like oh my gosh am i not a am i not macho enough to tackle this and it's yeah. like no you're kind of still glancing off of it you're still hitting it on the surface go a little deeper know why you're doing this and figure out what and then okay how is your heart's message being informed by your mind and then what you, and then you can approach the body like, yeah so i want to ask you one drum question real quick like with all of this did it in any way alter the ergonomics of the way you set up your drums? Like, and the reason what's coming to mind is we're all getting old, I know, but still for me, like lately, if I'm playing like a verse where it's like eighth notes on the floor, Tom, my arm is cocked back like this and like the back of my shoulder blade will start to kind of hurt a little bit. And I've been just kind of rethinking my own setup lately. Like, I mean, it's up against the bass drum. I can't do a whole lot as far as positioning of the floor, Tom, but I'm, I'm slightly re-examining certain things in my setup to make it more comfortable for like natural motion of my body. You can access that this way. So there's this idea of the latitude of the up and kind of, of, of a globe. There's mm -hmm. the latitude lines. And so trying to keep, trying to imagine the hemisphere on one hand this way. And mm -hmm. so this is going to be the one, the, the, the hunting ground, I like to think of it. So you could play this floor tom this way and this stroke, you're not gonna get a lot of power from right. the muscle, but you get all the power from the velocity because you can really get a lot of velocity because of the throw. But if you were to play eighth notes on your floor tom and you do it sideways like that? Yeah. Wow, interesting. Yeah. I'd never think to do that. Yeah, I didn't either. I, mm. I, I haven't changed my setup much, but I've changed how I play a lot. Yeah. And so, and then also a big fact, oh man, I got to give a shout out to Tony Bronigal, man. That guy has been amazing in my life. So I did a blues cruise when I was just about at the worst part of my <laughs> kind of pre-diagnosed, you know, mm -hmm. trauma adventure. And uh, yeah, he saw it. He saw it in my right hand, the tension while we were a bunch of drummers, a bunch of bands mm -hmm. on the blues cruise. And he, and he, I kind of spilled my guts to him, told him what happened and like the level of empathy and trauma informed awareness that he had, that guy had because <laughs> he had had a shoulder injury that prevented him from playing for a while. Wow. Awesome. Awesome blues drummer. Tons of Grammys as a drummer and Grammys as a producer and amazing wow. guy. And I can totally see now why he has all that because when he's in a situation where something traumatic gets flared up in a group, he knows what to do. He just has that. It's, it's co compassionate empathy, mm -hmm. like fusing emotional empathy with cognitive empathy, understanding what's being 
felt, what's being thought, and knowing what you can bring to it to solve the problem. Wow. That, like compassionate empathy in any discipline is like, the biggest thing you can own on any level. Like uh, outside of the component parts that are specific to a discipline, like bringing compassionate empathy to anything increases your value in what you're doing 10 times. Wow. And particularly to music. I mean, that's mm -hmm. all we're doing. We're trying to feel and understand and mm -hmm. respond and make better. I mean, you know, that's yeah. all we're doing. And so they are very tactical and um, uh just specific ways to work on our empathy to the level of being compassionate and man tony just owns it he's just who he is i think wow. so he's like man i know what you're going through i have some ways to you know kind of figure out how to body moves to help with that and you know sure socially it must be hard you know we can talk about that i know physically i know financially i don't i'm not even going to charge you for lessons just come over we'll talk about it so wow. i mean like i mean if when i get help like that from him and from some other angels in my life, I just feel like I have to talk about this more. Like yeah. that's really the reason. Cause well, Stan I'm glad to have you on the show, man. I'm glad you're doing this book. I'm excited <laughs> for that. That's gonna oh, be really thank cool. You. And I mean, in the meantime, I think everyone should watch that MI talk that you did. I, I got a lot out of that. Oh, okay. I, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I was, I feel much more refined about it now. That was yeah. my first kind of public foray into talking about it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm glad, man, thank you for watching it. And man, thank you for having us at your mm -hmm. studio. I'm sure, you know, being in the educational field, I'm, this, I'm sure this, I mean, this a lot falls on us as educators as being a kind of aware of, you know, trauma informed education and empathy and the whole idea of like what's Googleable or non Googleable, like trying to stay non Googleable in our teaching practice. And man, I've really enjoyed the podcast. Oh, I didn't, I got to tell the story though. <laughs> oh, <right>. So <laughs> I was riding the Metro a lot and uh, I was getting into podcasts cause there's a Metro station where I live. And so I was, Oh, musician mindset. This looks cool. So, and I didn't even see your names and I got totally into it. I remember oh, before be you and I yeah, talked about it. Yeah. Oh, and so cool, the man. first one I saw the Katie O'Sullivan one and and I was like, this is amazing. This looks awesome. And I remember you were the person that was downloading the show that week. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And you talked about the self journal. Right. And then I yeah. bought it. I bought it. Because, oh, man, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. I've been that's working awesome. out of the self journal for wow. years now. And yeah, I man, I really enjoyed the podcast, what both of you are contributing. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Man. wow. That's, really that's encouraging. So refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's listening. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, we just hit it. We just hit a thousand downloads. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, uh, we got that news the other day. It's like, okay. Yeah. There we go. This oh, is like cool. our baby steps. This is our Wayne's World public public access show that ah. we do. <laughs> didn't, didn't think anybody listened yeah, to it. Yeah, it's really wow, good. Man. The Nick stuff was great. I loved what he had. Yeah. This and how you all. Nick's actually it. the one that told me about the self journal. Oh, yeah, he got me into okay. it. Fantastic. Yep. Yeah, all it's right. amazing. So I'm working on one that's my that incorporates journaling. Mm -hmm. So on the one page or pages of the daily aspect of the self journal, you would journal mm -hmm. and you would let like freeform journaling and then you that you would use that to inform the daily pages in the self journal so when you go back to review you know months later right. how your process you can also kind of get into where you were psychologically and so yeah yeah journaling yeah writing man yeah writing is inviting it's mm -hmm. like you access parts of your brain you didn't know where you're there because so many skills are involved in just like getting the pen to move and form you know words that make sense there's like the other things in your deeper psyche kind of come out when you mm -hmm. free write i can't do you think there's a value in writing it with a pen or pencil versus typing it versus dictating absolutely. it with siri or absolutely handwriting handwriting is yeah, scientifically yeah. proven yeah. i mean it's yeah it made all the difference for me when i type i like this 
the tactile thing with the keys it's plastic i don't know and then writing just the dna of that action like historically for how many thousands of years mm -hmm. and calligraphy i mean there's just so much your signature like there's so much about who you are that is mm -hmm. in just mm -hmm. the act of writing yeah that you have yeah. to do it by hand yeah. i think unless yeah. i mean you if you just need to get a note down or type a paper or blow through something but if you're really trying to get in touch with something deep inside you, yeah. it has to be handwritten, I think, on a continual basis. Deal with it being crap for so long. You're like free writing, just you know, spewing bullshit that you've told yourself a million times. But on that third week, on that second page, one day, they'll, you'll, you might not even remember writing it. And then you'll, like I did. Like right. I would have never, un that was my. Uh, that it was, was like my. a fleeting thought that otherwise you wouldn't have. Yeah. Able, you wouldn't be able to go back and reflect on it later. Yeah. 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 Because the pie chart of attention, like there's so much going on and it's sort of like, okay, there's this tiny little bit that's left in the pie chart that was you actually communicating. Mm -hmm. Like there's uh, the motor skills, the words representing whatever language, da, 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 da. And so like just that act, when you remove all that and you go back to just reading it, the pie chart of attention suddenly instead of 10% is now 80 in understanding. And so mm -hmm. when you go back and read what you wrote, you can really dig further down into what you're feeling and why. Wow. Amazing. Why are you a typer? Are you bummed out now? <laughs> uh, no. Well, I mean, in general I am. Yeah. But yeah. I haven't done other than that self journal, which I have not done lately. I'm not a big journaler. Not that I don't want to be. I just, it's not something I've done a lot of. But, you know, listening to you, it's inspiring me to get more into it. And I was just, as I'm thinking for myself, you know, I wonder if it's handwriting or typing would be good. So, yeah, I'm going to try it with handwriting for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Cool. Wow. Yeah, I just want to say that, real quick, that um, I, I personally have gotten a lot out of this conversation. And I appreciate you being really open about it. I, I oh, agree with everything that you said, and, and I use a lot of those methodologies when I'm instructing. But it's always good to be reminded of uh, a lot of these concepts um, I have way more questions for you for, for later. Um, but, uh, I, I just think it is, it's so valuable to be body aware and then understanding that body aware comes with being emotionally aware. Uh, and it's hard for people to take that extra step. You know, they only think, they only think on the, the what you can feel, not willing to go and process a little bit deeper. So that's, um, it's really great that, that you're inspiring people to, to go ahead and do that because it is super important. So I, I've gotten a lot out of this. I appreciate oh. it. Cool. There one, one last Bessel <laughs> van der Kolk quote. So this is Bessel saying, oh, talking about a patient of his, as she gained ownership over her physical sensations, she also began to be able to tell the difference between past and present. And so being in the flow, being in the mm. present is really owning those physical sensations and being aware of them. And that's heavily reflected in Katie O'Sullivan's podcast with mm. you guys. And is just at this point, it's just clinical fact that our psycho psychology and physiology are completely connected. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah totally. I'm going to one up your closing quote. Oh, yeah. This is an Adam Gust. Oh, quote. it'll never happen. <laughs> <laughs> this is the other thing I wanted to bring up that I wrote down off of your uh, video. Adam Gust said, the most important experiences that I have had are the ones where I didn't get what I want. The most important experiences you're going to have are going to be failures. Yeah. That's we can true. just leave that there or we can talk about it. Is it a good closing or? 
Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I think go I love out, that. Go love out that and idea. have failures because yeah. I think part of this kind of hyper-masculine posturing toxic masculinity thing, the problem is when you have a failure, you are a failure. It's so attribute-based that the failure becomes an attribute of who you are rather than an action. And if you can divorce it out of who you are into a finite thing that happened and is going away, it, I think that's huge. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, how we respond to failure, I think we're taught as men to have it take us down. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, and as, and as entrepreneurs, you're told to fail fast, fail often. Right. And that's completely contradictory to what we're taught as men to be, you know, on the white horse, be the, you yeah. know, and to win everything. And so, yeah, it's, I think, man, if you're going to really embrace failure, you had better dig into what your masculinity means to you and also uh, to women to just understand that cycle. I I mean we're not masculine without women mm -hmm. and so that's a whole nother very detailed conversation jackson katz's book on masculinity is amazing and how this cycle of trauma between the genders is mind-blowing and wow. uh, yeah terry one more time terry Riel's <laughs> book i don't want to talk about it and vessel van der Kolk that i've been quoting the body keeps the score yeah. uh if you want to be ready to uh, for post-covid i mean being trauma informed in any discipline is absolutely essential and you that you cannot go wrong reading Bessel's book. Hmm. And where can our guests, uh, or, or guess where can our listeners find you? Follow you? Find me, uh, Adam Gust, uh, Adam Gust Instagram, Adam Gust Facebook, Adam Gust YouTube. And uh, my website will be out on my birthday. <laughs> I'm going to ask people to give me a free birthday present and uh, subscribe and check my site out on August 10th. So, yeah, that's, that'll awesome. be the launch of that, up. working up to Adam that. AdamGust.com? AdamGust.com, cool. yeah, and TraumaDrummer.com. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah, I used to think the trauma drummer would be the worst possible thing I could ever be called. I remember thinking, oh, I don't want to tell anybody about this. You know, right. they're going to call me trauma drummer. And you, now I'm like, you know what? Hell yeah. Like, yeah. I'll own that. I'm like, yeah. I don't. I'm happy to talk about it. I think we don't talk about it enough. I've been pursuing the conversation with people. The reason I called yeah. you, I yeah. was just kind of maybe you knew somebody. You know, yeah. maybe I want to be a resource to people. And man, I feel like if if I had me <laughs> 10 years ago, right. my life would have been so different. So. Well, that's what I was saying at the beginning, man. I just appreciated the phone call because I think you texted me and I said to my wife, I'm like, Oh, Adam Gus texted me. She's like, do you think, is it spam? Is it real? Cause like I hadn't talked to you in so long. She's like, what does he want? He wants you to call. But you know, usually like people, uh, you, you hear from someone on your past, you're like, Oh, he wants a gig or something like that. <laughs> but when I called you, I was like, what an awesome phone call that was, man. It like was what a, what a dude. And like, then that's when I realized that you were, you guys were growth of mind or a musician's mindset. Yeah. I was like, Oh my God, I've been listening to yeah, that man, podcast. That's so funny. It's great. Yeah. Wild. Thank you. Awesome. So thank well, you for having me. I never know where the day's going to turn. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, really cool. Uh, anything else you want to, you want to throw in here, Dave? Uh, it's been great, man. Thank you for being here. Oh, my <clears> pleasure. Absolutely. Cheers. Yeah. yeah. Very good. And just one final thing here for all our musicians, especially our pro musician friends out there. Just keep hanging on. It's hard for all of us right now. You know, it's hard for all of us, no doubt about it. But got to be resilient, got to keep fighting, and we're all going to play gigs one day. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just stay focused and work on yourself during this time. Right we'll on. catch you guys soon. Thanks for listening to Musician Mindset Podcast with Dave Johnstone and Jason Lamb. You can contact the show through Facebook and Instagram at Musician Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a written review and a five-star rating on iTunes.